from Brown Cow Studios in Gallatin Gateway, Montana. This is News Nerds. I'm Ezra Graham. When a gunman killed 20 first graders and six educators on December 14, 2012, at Sandy Hook Elementary School, many called for bipartisan action. Well, my guest today will explain that this action never really came, and in addition, conspiracy theorists, including Alex Jones, spread false claims that the shooting was staged by the government. Elizabeth Williamson is a feature writer for the New York Times and has written about what she calls a, quote, battle for truth, unquote, surrounding the shooting in Newtown, Connecticut. Williamson was previously part of the Times' editorial staff and wrote for the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post before joining the Times. While there, she was a correspondent covering Eastern Europe. We'll talk about her book, Sandy Hook, An American Tragedy and the Battle for Truth, and how conspiracy theorists, including Alex Jones, influenced what America thought about this shooting. It's Wednesday, April 12th, and this is News Nerds, and this week is also our third year anniversary. It's been more than a decade since the Sandy Hook shooting happened in Newtown, Connecticut, but my guest Elizabeth Williamson says that we can still see its effects today. She works as a feature writer for the New York Times, where she was previously part of their editorial board. And before working with the Times, Elizabeth was a journalist with the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post. She published a book on Sandy Hook that draws on her time with the families affected by the shooting and, in some cases, people that spread conspiracies about what happened on December 14th, 2012. Uh, The book is called Sandy Hook, An American Tragedy and the Battle for Truth, and it's now in paperback. Thank you so much for being with us today. It's my pleasure, Ezra. So when you were doing the research for the book and getting interviews done, Well, first, I should just mention that you weren't reporting on Sandy Hook uh, during 2012. You actually started reporting um, on Sandy Hook in, I think, 2018, which was when more the legal side of Sandy Hook really started to unfold. Um, But for the book, you still talked to the victim, the the families of the victims of Sandy Hook, and you traveled to Newtown, Connecticut many times to research and talk to people involved with the shooting. So what did families of the victims and people involved with Sandy Hook say when you reached out to them? Just as you said, um, I did not cover the shooting itself. And the reason that, you know, this book, this book exists is really about what happened in the years after the shooting, when a number of people, in fact, thousands or tens of thousands came to believe falsely that the shooting was a so-called false flag operation, meaning it was staged by the government as a pretext for confiscating Americans' firearms. And so that I felt like, you know, um, in mid-2018, several of the families sued Alex Jones of InfoWars, who was one of the big propagators of this hoax theory for defamation. And I thought it would be a very interesting test of the First Amendment. Alex Jones of course, claims that his right to free speech protects his years of, you know, naming the families by name and accusing them of participating in a plan to stage their own loved one's deaths. So when I reached out to the families, they basically, you know, they were ready. The ones that I I talked with were ready to speak about this because 
they were involved in litigation against Alex Jones. First, they told me about, you know, the day itself and then how almost, you know, within days after the shooting, they started to hear that there was a theory circulating that the shooting shooting actually hadn't happened and that it had been staged. And, you know, they later learned that Alex Jones, within hours of the shooting, was already spreading this theory on his show to millions of listeners. So that's kind of the basis for the book and how your reporting might be different from other journalists who were covering Sandy Hook as it unfolded. Um, were any of the families wary of of what you were doing because they were targeted by people like Alex Jones or people that believed what Alex Jones was saying? Did they think that you might have just been wanting to get away to talk to some of them? Um, I think they had a variety of reactions. And to this day, you know, the families have, you know, of a, a range of reactions to the book itself and to my effort to shed light on this situation. And that's their right. You know, they, of course, um, have different ways of looking at this and the most painful event in their lives. And, you know, it's important to remember that after the shooting, in the immediate aftermath of it, they were subjected to a deluge of media in Newtown. And not all the reporters who were there um, behaved uh, respectfully toward the families or toward their story. And so, you know, some of them have, have really felt burned by that. And so they end up being very wary toward anyone who wants them to retell their story um, because it's, you know, um, a devastatingly awful story. And it's also extremely precious to them because it has to do with the last moments of their loved ones and what happened after that. So they have a, a range of reactions. And as far as the, the subject of the book, I mean, basically what I learned through the insights of a Sandy Hook dad, Lenny Posner, whose son Noah died at Sandy Hook, and he has a technology background. And so he, you know, helped me to understand that the story of the conspiracy theories that spread after Sandy Hook are actually a foundational story of how um, mistruths and disinformation have gained traction in our society and in our culture. And, you know, in the book, I trace the continuum from Sandy Hook, as you point out, more than 10 years ago, and the spread of disinformation around things like we went from that to Pizzagate, the false theory that Democrats were trafficking children from the base, from the basement of a DC pizzeria. We went from that to coronavirus myths, to QAnon, to the 2020 election and the false belief that the election was stolen, which led to the January 6th, 2021 attack on the Capitol. So, you know, I'm making the point in the book that, you know, we're, we can follow this chain of events and see how these false narratives have gained traction and how more and more frequently the num the Americans who believe these these mistruths and and these false theories are willing to defend them with confrontation and with violence. So um that's the point of the book. And you know, it sort of makes the the point that 
you know, this has gotten to the point where it not only threatens vulnerable people like the Sandy Hook families, but it threatens the foundations of our democracy. When you have people laying waste to the Capitol, the seat of our government, because they believe the election was stolen, that's a direct threat on our system. So in those 10 years, things have gone from bad to worse. I want to talk about um, the conspiracy around Sandy Hook, um, but I, I do want to talk about what kind of happened um, in Newtown and then um, how people reacted to that. So, sure. and you were just mentioning that there was a lot of different reactions to journalists covering Sandy Hook. And there was a, a passage in the book that really told me something. Um, it It was a kind of a vivid description of how um, the parents of one of the victims of Sandy Hook came out of the fire department where they had just learned from the governor of Connecticut that their child was not going to come back from the school. And they go out of the firehouse and they're just in a, a basically a mob of, of reporters. And it was, it just, it struck me that, you know, journalism can be just a powerful thing, powerful way in both directions for, you know, a way to keep power in check and to cover the underdogs. But it can also, if it's handled wrongly, be a very powerful way to alienate people. I want to talk about Adam Adam Lanza's story really quickly. Um, He was the shooter that took 26 lives at Sandy Hook in December 2012, 21st grade students and six educators. Would you say that his story is like other mass shooters that have just become such a frequent kind of staple of, of what we see in the media? Um, certainly, yes, there are similarities, Ezra. It, it, I would say what makes this particularly tragic and sad is that Adam Lanza was someone who had severe mental illness. And, you know, over the course of his you know, he was only 20 years old. And over the course of his 20 years, he had spiraled. And he was really failed by all of the adults in his life, from the educational system to his own parents, who, you know, his mom um, preferred to shelter him and, and you know, didn't, didn't, you know, to be fair, didn't know what to do, but wanted to shelter him from all the things, all the outside world that was causing him so much agitation, allowed him to become increasingly isolated. And then in an effort to bond with him, brought him to the shooting range and gave him access to semi-automatic weapons, despite really significant uh, deterioration of his mental health. So, you know, in the the studies that were done after the shooting, you know, they, they talked about that, how his mom had brought him to the Yale Child Study Center in uh, New Haven, Connecticut, and they had done an evaluation and they had cautioned, you know, the family saying, this, this is something that really needs to be addressed. He needs intensive therapy. He's becoming more and more isolated. There's a danger that he'll withdraw from reality. And that is exactly what happened. And so, you know, the real sadness of this is that there are many signs that had they been heeded, you know, there might have been a different outcome uh, in 2012. Days after the shooting, when Adam Lanza first um, killed his own mother, who he was he was living with, 
his parents had split up and his dad wasn't in town that day. He uh, went to Sandy mm-hmm. Hook um, and then eventually took his own life as well. And days after Sandy Hook, after this disaster, um, and, you know, what would become the a very deadly moment in the nation's history, especially for education and for children, Alex Jones and other people close to Alex Jones and who followed his show InfoWars, which is still running today, latched onto the theory that this whole thing was staged as the gov- by the government, as you say um, in the book and as you were just telling us. Why did Alex Jones latch onto this theory in particular? Because it doesn't seem like he can really run out of theories. Yeah, that's a good question. This idea that uh, major American um, mass tragedies had been staged by the government was sort of a theme of Alex Jones's. He said that 9-11 was an inside job, the 1994 Oklahoma City bombing of the um, Alfred Murrah Center was also staged by the government. So this was an ongoing theme. He uh, has a kind of or had a kind of libertarian bent, so he was opposed to additional gun legislation, and he, um, like people on both sides of the gun debate, saw Sandy Hook as a watershed moment for the fight for gun legislation. And so whether you were in favor of that or you opposed it, you know, the killing of 20 first graders and six educators was going to stir this debate. And people on both sides were extremely energized. And Alex Jones, opposing additional gun legislation, saw calling this a faked event as a kind of tool in his macabre toolkit. As soon as he learned the toll and that, you know, 20 children were among the dead, he knew that this would become a cause for the gun policy um, movement. So he felt like, if I deny this, I can muddy the waters and stir some chaos because there weren't a lot of... um, legitimate things to say in the immediate aftermath of that. And being a conspiracy theorist, this was a very handy thing to come up with if you were opposed to additional gun legislation. Do you think that he succeeded in um, stopping legislation against guns? I don't think he had an impact, although he you know, his opposition to additional gun legislation in the aftermath of Sandy Hook really put him on the mainstream media radar. He had been on CNN. He was interviewed um, on the Howard Stern show. You know, he he was it was a kind of breakout moment for him. But no, I, I have to lay um, that responsibility for that on the steps of Congress. There was no major national gun legislation passed in the aftermath of Sandy Hook, despite um, a very significant and broad-based effort to pass additional gun laws. So that that was uh, a failure. So that's an additional irony here that, you know, people who believe that this was a faked event that was meant to push for additional legislation. I mean, all you have to do to know that that's a lie 
is look at the facts on the ground. There was no additional national gun legislation passed in the aftermath of Sandy Hook. President Obama, who, you know, was um, accused of colluding with the Newtown families to try and uh, stage this event to push for this, was not only unsuccessful, um, Newtown itself, the idea that this town of 15,000 in New England, which did not vote to reelect President Obama that very year, that they collaborated with him to seamlessly stage a fake mass shooting is just, it's just so fantastical just on its face. And, and it's not borne out by any of the facts on the ground, no matter how you look at it. And they were basing their claims um, on a CNN interview um, with Anderson Cooper, where his nose kind of disappears for a second. Uh, CNN, you know, has explained that that was just a glitch with the satellite connection. The conspirators cited that there was no emergency helicopters that that were on the scene, and they thought that was suspicious. And they also thought that porta potties at the scene were also kind of suspicious because. They thought that, you know, how would somebody know to put them there if it wasn't just all a state, if it wasn't just a stage thing? Do you have any sense of what the demographics of Sandy Hook's conspirators were? Oh, another good question. You know, a lot of the people in the beginning, the people who believed in this theory or at least researched it or, you know, thought about it, um, a significant number of them were moms who had children the age of those who died at Sandy Hook. They were sort of there for anybody who could tell them that this horrific event had not happened. But they quickly fell away from and disavowed the theory after they learned the facts. It was more a matter of trauma and wishful thinking. Um, but the people who are the diehards here tend to be opposed to additional gun legislation. They tend to be conservative. Uh, many of them that I interviewed for the book are older. And they have, you know, the thing, though, that is really important to understand about these conspiracy theories, and we see this in the body of conspiracy theory that has sprung up around coronavirus and vaccinations in particular, no matter if it's for coronavirus or, you know, childhood diseases. The anti-vax movement is a perfect example of how a mindset and psychology are more determinative of whether somebody will embrace a conspiracy theory or a conspiracy kind of uh, outlook than are their politics. Anti-vax people are on the left. Um, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is one of the leading spreaders of these lies around vaccines. And they're on the right. You know, the people in the militia groups who are, are convinced that this is a way of, you know, injecting a microchip into your bloodstream. So these people come from a variety of political points of view, but they are united in believing these lies about vaccines. So it, it's really kind of a perfect example of how it's more this idea of deep distrust of government and of established science and of our institutions and a kind of conspiratorial mindset. People who believe in one conspiracy theory tend to jump from one to the next to the next 
Many of them have their in their politics, you know, switches from the political left to the right, because, again, it's not determinative of this mindset. We find conspiracy theories across the and theorists across the political spectrum. It's more of a, um, you know, there there's there are these character traits in people, a kind of paranoid view, a suspicion, um, a certain kind of narcissism in that they like to be possessors of of you know, exclusive information. They believe that they, you know, understand things in a superior way than most others. And a certain Machiavellianism, meaning that they will act in defense of these beliefs in the in the sense that the end justifies the means. So those sorts of personality and character traits are much more predictive of, um, you know, the, the thing that you find in all conspiracy theorists as opposed to their politics. Do you think that this is just an American thing to be so involved with conspiracy theories? No, absolutely not. The conspiracy theory around uh, mass shootings and Sandy Hook are seen as kind of specifically American, but that's more because we have so many mass shootings in this country, you know, far, far greater number of mass shootings than any other nation or country. Conspiracy theories and theorists, like I said, these personality traits are found in people the world over. And, you know, I worked in Russia where, you know, we see now the conspiracy theories emerging around the war in Ukraine, the propaganda that's being spread, you know, that consists of conspiracy theories. Uh, Vladimir Putin has uh, done a really good job of harnessing this kind of conspiratorial mindset and paranoia to advance his propaganda about the war. And, you know, there's a really excellent example of that. I mean, in, excellent in a horrible way in that the women who early in the war on Ukraine, when Russia bombed a maternity hospital in Mariupol, Ukraine, they said that this attack was staged and they called the pregnant women and new mothers who were evacuated from that bombed hospital crisis actors. And that term crisis actors was originally used to apply to the families after Sandy Hook. So we can see how these theories not only propagate themselves and spread and endure over years, but they they are used and deployed by bad political actors the world over. I want to play a clip from a This American Life episode. Um, it's called Beware the Jabberwock. And the caption is stories from the upside down world where conspiracy theorists dwell. And for one of the stories that they tell, um, one of their producers, Mickey Meek, um, interviews Lenny Posner, whose son Noah was one of the victims of Sandy Hook. And he might be the person that is known best for standing up to conspiracy theorists that were, you know, harnessing on his story and his son's story. And so this is a clip. This is actually two clips from an interview that he did with This American Life. One apartment that I had moved into, I had only lived there, I think, for uh, a month. And I got a call from a particular hoaxer who happens to be in prison now for attempted murder. And um, he called me up and was acting like a smartass and then read me my social security number and then read me my address where I had just moved into. And uh, I said, well, you know what? I don't like this apartment that much anyway. And, uh, and I moved shortly after that. To combat this, Lenny had to change tactics one final time. 
No more talking to hoaxers one-on-one. Now the thing he'd focus on was content removal, scrubbing their stuff off the internet. Okay, so that was um, kind of what happens next in this whole story and how um, the victims kind of reacted to um, what was happening uh, around them on the internet and, you know, even in the real world, uh, Lenny describes, you know, being confronted by one of these conspiracy theorists. Um, so that's one of the stories of the relatives of a Sandy Hook um, victim. What were other relatives of Sandy Hook victims doing at this time? So um, in the trial against Alex Jones for damages in Connecticut in November, um, the families described um, in that case described a number of things that had happened to them. But basically what happened generally in the aftermath of the shooting was first people who believed the shooting was false and that the families of the victims staged their helped stage their loved ones' deaths. They contacted them online. So they defaced their Facebook pages that they had set up to memorialize their lost loved ones their friends' pages that were created to provide funeral information or to raise money for burial costs um, were invaded by these hoaxers. Then people started to approach them on the street. They turned up in front of their houses. They took pictures. They went through their trash and they called them and they confronted them on the internet. They also wrote to them um, and that particularly scared them because that was that made it obvious that these people knew where they lived. And they continually said that they had a role in um, planning this so-called fake event. Lenny Posner was really early on the only family member who took this on as a cause and said, I'm going to fight back against this. This is something that is the tip of an of a coming iceberg that these theories are circulating after Sandy Hook, but soon they will circulate after every mass shooting. And you can see the rise in disinformation online and people who are making money by spreading it. So he decided to go after these hoaxers and that really made him a target. So what he was describing in that clip was, you know, just one example of the harassment and the torment that he suffered for years because as he described, he was trying to take this material down from the internet. And you can do that using copyright laws because many of these hoaxers, websites, videos, social media pages, calling the shooting a hoax, used images of the children and the, and their, you know, the educators and videos that belonged to their families. They were family property, you know, that had been put onto these fundraising pages or the family's own websites and that type of thing. So he used uh, our copyright laws to get that material taken down. And he got tens of thousands of pieces of material taken down that were advertising this hoax and that people were using to raise their own money to go and investigate Sandy Hook and to make trips to Newtown, et cetera. So he was far and away the biggest target um, of these hoaxers because he was taking them on and bringing the fight for truth to them. So it sounds like although Lenny was maybe the face of of the activism against conspiracy theorists that were targeting um, victims, he was not the only one 
receiving these threats. I want to talk about um, Alex Jones a little bit more. Something that is kind of surprising is that Alex Jones, um, to me, gives more interviews than maybe other conservative hosts to what is kind of perceived as the liberal media. So he gave an interview to you for the book. In the same episode um, that I was just talking about in This American Life, he also gave an interview to them. And it just surprises me because right now I'm on Infowars.com. And first, this big pop-up comes off, comes up that says 40% off DNA Force Plus. And this looks like some sort of supplement or something. Um, and I'll explain kind of why this is relevant. There's a banner that that says it's back 25% off ultimate bone broth plus order today. And then the breaking news headline that is on infowars.com right now says Friday war room live in all caps female swimmer gets held hostage by group of radical transgender activists. So that's kind of why it surprises me that he gives these interviews, but he gave an interview to you. Can you kind of tell the story of how that happened? Sure. These families filed a total of four lawsuits against Alex Jones, later combined into three. So two of them were, you know, unfolded in Texas and one involving the families of um, nine victims was in Connecticut where the shooting took place. So at the very beginning of the series of hearings and, um, and uh, legal wrangling that culminated in some of the damages judgments that happened last year, it all began in 2018. So in summer of 2018, I went to the first hearing as these lawsuits began to move forward. And I interviewed Alex Jones's ex-wife, Kelly Jones, who spoke about kind of their early years together. They both, you know, worked on InfoWars and founded it. And she was talking with me about, you know, the evolution of Alex Jones from a relatively harmless, you know, um, commentator on public access TV in Austin, Texas, where he lives, to what we see today, a person who, you know, has contributed to the torment of these families. And so she mentioned that they have been fighting over uh, money and over child custody since their divorce in 2013. And they had a hearing. So uh, she said, you should come in to the hearing and he'll be there. So afterward, I approached him and said I wanted to interview him for The Times um, because we were working on a deep dive into his business model, which you touched on that, Ezra. Um, he earns currently around $70 million a year, give or take 10 or $20 million, selling products and merchandise that are tailored toward the paranoias of his audience. So diet supplements for and, and uh, vitamins and um, alternative quack treatments for people who distrust traditional medicine and established science, doomsday proper merchandise for people who are preparing for the end of times and all kinds of literature and things that promote his theories. So he earns a lot of money. And whenever he talked about Sandy Hook, sales of these products actually surged. So we were doing this story about that. And um, I went up to him and said, you know, I'd like to interview you. And surprisingly, I think he was a bit rattled by what had happened in the courtroom and, you know, about the cases being filed. He invited me to um, to interview him, but he didn't know that, you know, what I would do is just show up at his headquarters 
in the ne- over the next hour and just say, well, okay, here I am. And so he actually, to my surprise, said, okay, come on in. I'll record it. And, you know, of course, I, I was recording it as well. And he said, you're the hill I die on. You know, I I want to see if I can convince you that, you know, I never really talked about this that much, that I was only repeating the views of others when I spread these theories. Um, I, you know, I never meant to harm anyone, et cetera. So I interviewed him for a couple of hours. And then the next day after I was back in Washington, I also interviewed him by phone um, with a lot of follow-ups for a couple more hours. So I think, you know, one of the things that people always ask me is, is it hard to approach these people because they're so distrustful of the mainstream media? But there's also an aspect to many of these conspiracy theorists, and that's that they're a kind of evangelist. They want to see if they can convince you. The lure of being able to convince any mainstream journalist that their views are true um, and have that be broadcast around the world or around the country, it's just more than they can really resist. So they do tend to be pretty talkative. They, they want to convince you. They want to sell you on their theories. They want you to go check out what they're saying, the questions that they're asking. Um, and so they tend to be pretty approachable. And, um, and Alex Jones, at least until he really got into these lawsuits, was approachable as well. Now it's a different story. He's really, uh, locked down and, um, you know, because he is in a lot of legal trouble and he's, he's involved in ongoing litigation. So he's less accessible than he was back in 2018 when I talked with him. Let's talk about the legal action. Right now, you know, he's had to pay uh, about $1.4 billion to families of the victims and people involved with Sandy Hook. I want to read, um, or I want to just quote a, a piece in the New York Times that you recently wrote. And this is kind of detailing how he filed for bankruptcy and how he's also kind of spreading his wealth so he might not have to pay as much as the court um, is going to order him to do. So this is from a piece that you co-wrote, I think, um, I think you co-wrote it in the New York Times. It says, quote, a New York Times review of financial documents and court records filed over the past year found that Mr. Jones has transferred millions of dollars in property, cash, and business deals to family and friends, including to a new company run by his former personal trainer, all potentially out of reach of creditors. He has also spent heavily on luxuries, including $80,000 on a private jet, bodyguards, and a rented villa while he was in Connecticut to testify at a trial last fall, unquote. So where does the legal trouble that he's in stand now? As you mentioned, Ezra, the families have won together, uh, all together, a total of about $1.4 billion in damages um, for defaming them. It's money he doesn't have. He could have tens to hundreds of millions of dollars, but um, no one knows for sure because he's not very forthcoming about his financial records. He declared bankruptcy as soon as these judgments started coming in. He's declared both business and personal bankruptcy, and he's now in the process of submitting records that will give the families an idea of how much money he actually has. They will enter settlement talks. That's kind of a provision in bankruptcy law that 
and in the the specific part of the bankruptcy code that you know he's he filed under so there will be discussions about a settlement but the families at the same time and I don't want to get too into the legal weeds here for people and get confusing but um what the families have done basically is file a lawsuit a series of lawsuits asking the judge to rule that his debt to them the 1.4 billion is in legal terms, non-dischargeable through bankruptcy. That means that he can't leverage this bankruptcy filing to say, okay, how about if I pay you a fraction of what the jury's awarded you and call it a day? That has been his goal from the beginning. He declared bankruptcy previously and that, and then withdrew. And he used that to offer them at the time a $10 million settlement, which is, you know, as we see now, a tiny, tiny fraction of what the jury ultimately awarded the families. So he wants to leverage this to, you know, to pay them some money to make them go away, but nowhere near what the jury's awarded them, which on the other hand, he doesn't have. So they probably will end up settling for less. But if the judge rules that the bankruptcy law does not apply and that he doesn't he doesn't get to use bankruptcy to offer them a settlement, then that means that those judgments will basically stand if, you know, again, too many legal weeds here, but he will appeal the judgments. But whatever the award is, he will be paying on that basically for the rest of his natural life. You know, there won't be a settlement offered and that'll be the end of it. The families will continue, whether it's 10 or $100 a month or a million or whatever, he will have to continually pay them no matter where he goes, no matter what businesses he runs, no matter how long he lives, he will still be paying down this debt to them. That's what they want. And the judge has yet to rule on that. I think that was a really good um, explanation of kind of the complicated nature of everything that's happening right now, but also kind of what has to happen so far. I want to ask about... He's determined not to pay. Right, yeah. (laughs) Um, And he's using all kinds of uh, maneuvers to to try and pay as little as possible. Yeah. Alex Jones has definitely become a figure that's more in the limelight. He's become more famous because of all of this. And Trump was on his show... I think Trump said something like, you're a very likable guy or something close to that. That's paraphrasing. But, uh, you know, he's become more famous because of all of this. Do you have any sense of what the conservative ring of news media or, you know, talk show hosts like Mark Levin or Hannity or Bongino or any people like that? Do you have a sense of what Mm -hmm. they think of him right now? They kind of keep their distance from him. Text messages that were released as part of these lawsuits from Alex Jones's phone, you know, show him trying to kind of, um, you know, nuzzle up to Tucker Carlson and Carlson answering him and kind of going back and forth in a friendly way. I think that the statements that we've seen from people who speak about this case, whether they are, you know, it whether they are on the right or the far right, you know, they try to portray this as a First Amendment case, that his right to free speech is being infringed. At the same time, what the families, and particularly Lenny Posner, has been successful in doing is 
You never see Alex Jones's name mentioned anymore without the additional mention of the fact that he was responsible for the torment of these families who had already lost so much. That was not the case when the fight against Alex Jones began. Um, when immediately after the shooting, when he went on to talk about his gun control views, nobody even asked him whether it was CNN or BBC or anyone else. No one even asked him about the false theories that he was spreading about Sandy Hook. That's no longer the case. You know, this they the families have succeeded in lashing this misdeed to him so that even his cohorts in right wing media don't really want to publicly acknowledge um, their relationship with him. You know, so that's a change. You know, that's not to say, though, that, you know, the First Amendment is being, you know, deployed as um, a defense in a whole series of these outrages, not um, not least the um, Fox News lawsuit that was filed against them by Dominion and, and Smartmatic for broadcasters on Fox, you know, who the company alleges defamed those voting machine companies by implicating them in the false theory that the 2020 presidential election was stolen. So I think there are a whole lot of people um, in right-wing media who saw the outcome of the Alex Jones lawsuits, and there's still one more to go, which is Lenny's uh, lawsuit itself, which is, you know, might take place by the end of this year. But I think that you're seeing people a lot more reluctant to malign, particularly these families, but other vulnerable people and companies, because they're looking at these judgments and wondering if that's a risk that they want to take. And, you know, that's an achievement by the families and their lawyers when they finally, and in Lenny's case, very early, decided to push back. I want to ask you about your time in Europe. You were reporting from countries um, like Russia. And now that there's a conflict, and especially since you've been reporting on conspiracy that uh, the Russian government might also have employed to kind of start this conflict, did you do you feel like that you have a special or different perspective on why this is happening and why it might not have been able to happen maybe a decade ago? Sure. I think what happened with you know we we saw a kind of confluence of things when former president Trump was elected. For the first time, we had someone who you know, there there have always been factions in the American electorate of people who, you know, will espouse views that, you know, the great majority of Americans find unacceptable or or downright false, you know, paranoid theories and things like that. For the first time, you saw a presidential candidate in Donald Trump who was willing to speak to that section of the electorate. You know, you saw in 2008 when John McCain was running against Barack Obama, you saw a person kind of come up in in a town hall meeting and say, I heard he's an Arab. He scares me. And candidate McCain uh, shut that right down, as most politicians have done. It is extremely rare until the Trump era to see any politician running for national office 
cultivate that sort of fringe and call them a constituency. But with Donald Trump, Alex Jones's the reason he was on Alex Jones's show is that Roger Stone, who was an erstwhile advisor to Donald Trump, identified Alex Jones's audience as a vital constituency to help him win the presidency. He was running in the primary in a crowded field with a lot of more credible contenders, and he was willing in order to win to cultivate that sort of fringe segment of Americans who believed in these conspiracy theories, and he has never given up on them. And he speaks to their fears, their paranoias, their suspicions. Um, And so in doing that, he created a playbook for political figures the world over to say when they lose an election that the vote was rigged, to call any criticism of their actions or their treatment of their own people fake news, to malign the media in their countries and try and suppress a free press. So these things happened, but to have the leader of the free world provide a template for strong men in other parts of the world to to call the media fake news or to call you know these accusations against them credible accusations and charges against them falsehoods or conspiracy theories and to use conspiracy theories to pursue their own ends as i mentioned you know in in ukraine calling victims of war crimes crisis actors this is a really disheartening development. It used to be that, you know, our country stood as an example of, you know, how to nurture a democracy and not undermine it with lies and um, conspiracies. With the last administration, that began to change. You know, the fact that the Republican Party has not fully disavowed Uh, what went on on January 6th is disheartening indeed, because that was a direct assault on our democracy by believers, by by deluded people and, and people who cynically nurtured a lie in order to hold power and keep it. Do you think that there's any truth to what some people say, um, that you know the new york times is a left wing media uh organization or do you see any bias in the work of maybe colleagues or even yourself i think what happens across the spectrum is that people look for ways to when when we report on someone whether they are a democrat or a republican whether they are um liberal or conservative Shooting the messenger is, you know, at least one way to try and push back against that criticism. I think that journalists take a lot of care and a lot of pain and struggle. If you could see, and we, you know, I think about this all the time, if you could see the effort that goes into nailing down um, a a scoop about or, or an investigation into official misbehavior, People wouldn't casually fling around that idea that, oh, it's just because they're spouting left wing talking points, for example. The amount of care and, um, and fact checking and research, um, and multiple sourcing that goes into 
a really hard hitting story about a public servant or a politician is real. That said, you know, the editorial side, people tend to confuse the editorial side of the newspaper with the actual reporting. And that happens on the right and left. When I worked at the Wall Street Journal, I had the president, President Obama's communications director tell me, well, you work for Rupert Murdoch because Rupert Murdoch had just bought the Wall Street Journal and you take your talking points from Fox News. That couldn't have been further from the truth, but that is a convenient accusation to lob against someone when they write something that a politician doesn't like. Um, that's not to say that our editorial board doesn't take liberal positions. They do. They take the position of the owners of the newspaper and, and those are liberal positions. The Wall Street Journal's editorial board is conservative, but I would submit that the journalists in both those publications, because I've worked at both of them and I've also worked at the Washington Post, do their level best to check to make sure that a story is accurate, that it's fair, that people who are being criticized in the piece get their say, are given the chance to comment. I never write about Alex Jones without seeking a comment from him, without making multiple attempts to talk with him or his lawyers to get their point of view on a story that's critical of him. And, um, and that's just how we do our jobs. I can understand where people get confused on the editorial and the, um, and the news gathering sides. And I can understand where, you know, they could set, they could look at journalists' individual political views and conclude that, that they are liberal or they're conservative, depending on where they work. But I think the practice of news gathering is the same, whether, you know, where, wherever you are, whatever publication you work for, or it should be, it has to be thorough. It has to be um, deep. It has to be fair. And, you know, it only takes a, a few seconds to check if this is, if a piece that you're reading is an editorial or a piece from the newsroom. Elizabeth, thank you so much for talking to me today. Ezra, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you for your interest. journalist Elizabeth Williamson. Her book is Sandy Hook, An American Tragedy and the Battle for Truth. by me. We're on the web at newsnerdspodcast.com where you can catch up with past episodes, subscribe to our newsletter, play our crosswords, and contact us. Find News Nerds on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. And while you're there, please leave us a review. We're also on community radio station KGVM every other week at 5.30 p.m. Mountain Time. They're at kgvm.org or 95.9 FM on your radio. 
consider supporting them by going to kgvm.org support kgvm.